0: Good morning, Willow. It's good to see you guys once again. I'm here for another week. Holy applause. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking, joking, I'm joking. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Um, Let me just take a moment to pray. Um, Yeah, we'll just zone our hearts into what God's doing and what God wants to do in this time. So would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we do come before you and we just acknowledge that you are our one and true source of joy. And God, I don't know... If those of us in this room are experiencing that joy right now or able to express that joy, but I just pray as we hear from your word, as we hear from just you, Holy Spirit, I just pray that I say the way that you would work through me, that my words not be my own, and that you would just open up our hearts to hear only your voice this morning, Lord. So whatever we brought in today, will we just leave that at the foot of the cross and let you move and work in this time. So we yield to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you speak clearly to us this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're you're able to join us the last couple of weeks, we started, or I started an Advent series on encountering Jesus in the darkness. And week number one was this idea of encounter through watchfulness. So we looked at the parable of the doorkeeper in Mark chapter 13, and this idea of a heart posture around keeping watch where the Lord is at work in our lives. So the parable is the master leaves the house, leaves the servants in charge, and asks one guy to stand at the door and keep watch. For when the master comes So the idea of watchfulness, keeping this posture of where is God already at work in our lives, but also getting ready to prepare for His return. And so this idea of Advent is we wait expectantly for and bear witness to the second coming of Christ. And so Advent for us is a season of encounter. It's a season of encounter. And Advent for us as the church is to look inside of our own hearts. And there we find this, this crazy thing of the presence of Jesus in the form of the Holy Spirit but the absence of the body of Jesus. And so it's this ironic piece of it that Jesus left us, but he left us with his Holy Spirit. So God is still with us, Emmanuel. And this is this larger theme of looking at encountering Jesus Christ in the darkness. And so that was week number one, and last week we looked at this idea of embracing peace in the midst of uncertainty. So we looked at the book of Habakkuk and his interaction between God and just this idea that the nation of Judah is under this massive attack. It's under... Oppression from enemies under corrupt leadership, and there's just so much injustice going on. And Habakkuk asks the question to God, "Why? Why are you allowing this to happen?" And so God responds with saying, "I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to take care of this injustice." And Habakkuk's second complaint is this idea of, God, "Why would you send someone more evil than your more evil than us to take care of this?" But since we know our God, who is a just God, He does say in His response that Babylon too will also be brought down. That the, that the peace of God in Habakkuk's life was able— he was able to embrace the peace of God despite what was going on around him. And so that peace is only found in God alone, as we've already talked about. And it's just this inner contentment, regardless of our circumstances. And then holding on to the faith that God will be— he will keep his promises and he will be faithful to the very end. And so this week, we're actually looking at the other side of that coin— joy. Now, just as a show of hands, how many people in this room are only experiencing joy leading into this Christmas season? That's what I thought. (laughs) And how many of us are experiencing anything else other than joy in this Christmas season right now? Maybe in addition to joy? Right. (laughs) There's this idea of this Christmas season, I know for me, is one of the most stressful times of year. It's There's so much anxiety, there's awkwardness with family, there's high expectations that most of us have that usually don't seem to get ever met. And the enemy does such a great job at trying to rob the church of the joy found in Jesus. Especially this time of year. And so with us, joy is something that we need to pay attention to. There can be no joy without the peace of Christ. Joy is the expression of that peace. It is the outward expression of that peace that is found in Christ. And so we look at joy according to Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's as a result of the deliverance that Israel, between Egypt, Babylon, and other enemies. And it's also the idea of the anticipation of a coming Messiah. And it's this anticipation that we find in, in the New Testament that it's as a result of the coming Messiah who brings this restoration between creator and creation, between God and man. So joy is this attitude that's obviously not determined on our circumstances, but it's in the hope of God and the peace of his promise is made through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we heard from Frank and Karen and Tobin, and we declared together what does it, and we declared together this idea of that we wait as a people who experience hardship and pain, yet we are called to witness the persistent joy that sustains our life as God's people. as a powerful, powerful declaration. And I really hope as you are reading that, you're able to process, is that a reality for you? Those are not just words, but they have power. And so this week we're looking at encountering joy, encountering Jesus through joy with the spirit of joy. And a question that I've been dwelling on a lot this week is actually this. Would people that don't know Jesus know us as Christians a people of joy? Would the people who don't know Jesus know us as followers of Christ to be people of joy? I don't have a great answer to that question, but it's just one I want to throw out there. Because I feel like we hear the word joy, we pray for the word joy, or we pray for joy, but sometimes we don't necessarily have a decent grasp of what that looks like. And that's the main point of the message today, that we as followers of Jesus, living in the darkness, are, are able to receive joy as a result of his life, his love, and his power. We cannot manufacture joy, my friends. <laughs> I've tried. We cannot truly be joyful when there's no spirit of joy in us. There's a reason why Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians, this idea that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives us that. We can't, even, we can't manufacture it ourselves. So my prayer for us as a church is that the Spirit would grow that fruit of joy within us. Found in Jesus Christ. Which will lead to an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. So, what does the Spirit of joy look like? Just two points today. Point number one, this idea of experiencing joy by dwelling upon The promises of God. Experiencing joy by dwelling upon the promises of God. Now, I have to make an apology just right off the bat. We're going to be in Scripture. We're going to be all over the place. So please follow along. There'll be some Scripture on the screen for you guys to read with us. But the promises of God, as indicated in the Bible, are made by a God who always remains faithful to them. So I'm just going to give a few examples of what that looks like. Roll with me here. Exodus chapter 6. If you have your Bibles on you, open up to that book. Exodus 6. Start by reading the first eight verses. So as you're turning there, just to, to create the environment is this idea that Moses has now given God his yes. So in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in a massively burning push. And then he says, you know, I'm calling you to bring the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, to which Moses said, I can't do that. And God really works with him in the patience and all of his, his insecurities. And so Moses now returns to Egypt. He goes to the king of Egypt and tells him what God has asked him to do. Let my people go. And the king of Egypt actually gets angered by that, says no, obviously, but instead of listening, he now has the Israelites work twice as hard in slavery to create twice as many bricks, and he takes away all the raw materials. Now the Israelites have to find their own materials. So Moses he comes back to God and saying, God, you literally asked me to do this, and yet we're it seems like we're further away from rescue. What are you doing? So Moses returns back to God, and this is the response that God gives. Exodus 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them. To give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, you say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring to you the land I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is God's response to Moses. This is God still proclaiming the promise that he will bring the Egyptians out or he will bring the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. But I want us to take note for a second of how many times the word will appears in this passage. I'm going to read it once again, but just take note how often you hear the word will. Will. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment I will take you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob I will give it to you as a possession I am the Lord he says the word the word will is indicated 12 times in this one passage, this isn't a maybe that the Lord, yeah, well, maybe I'll consider it depending on how obedient you are to me. No. It, it says in this passage that God heard the groanings of the Israelites and he will bring them out. Now, obviously, we know the end of this story, but just try to be, like, try to put your, yeah, try to put yourself in the shoes of, of uh, Moses in this passage. You're hearing this and you're not sure what to believe. I mean, he he already went to the king of Egypt once and now he's called to go back, but now he hears the word will constantly and God will be faithful to that promise. Now that's just one. I want to hold on to that for a moment. We'll we'll visit that again later, but the next one I want to look at is King David. So flip over to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. So as you're flipping there, This is actually the story of King David being anointed by Samuel. Now Saul has been rejected by God as king. We know that according to the story that it wasn't God that chose Saul to be king. Israel said they wanted a king. And God said that I want to be your king. And they said, no, we want a king. So God said, fine, have one. And Saul was the choice. And so after this, so after the the rise and fall of Saul... God advises Samuel to no longer grieve over Saul's fall, but to head to Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons as God's chosen king, King David. For Samuel 16, one, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? I fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord had said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they heard him, or when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them them uh, to the sacrifice. And so, just skip down to verse 10. Verses in between. The sons of Jesse walk through Samuel, and God says, no, no, no. And then finally we get to the eighth son. Verse 10. Jesse had seven sons pass through Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest. Jesse answered, He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Now send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, had him brought. He was glowing with health and had such fine appearance and handsome features. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. As we move further into the book of 1 Samuel and even to the the next few chapters, we'll actually see that Samuel doesn't stay alive long enough to actually see this entire promise come into fruition. But as Samuel's hearing the voice of God, he's obedient to what God's calling him to do. He's obedient to anoint this, this little eighth boy who tends the sheep as this king. Again, I want, to hold on I want us to hold on to that for a moment. I want to go to the New Testament and look at the promise to Mary specifically from the angel. Luke 1, if you want to flip there, <laughs> I know we're flipping around a lot, I apologize, but Luke chapter 1 verse 26. This is six months into the pregnancy of, pregnancy of Elizabeth know that Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist and the angel Gabriel visits Mary with a promise. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greetings might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will it be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, "The, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One is to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. And the angel left her. So this idea that Mary's hearing this, and I love verse 37. It says, "May no word from God ever fail." And never does. And so the reason why I'm highlighting these things is not because of the fact that these are promises and whatever, not just because they're words, but I'm highlighting them because of this. In one way or another, they're promises that will be kept because it's God himself that spoke them. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Samuel. God sent the angel Gabriel with a message from God specifically to Mary. The reason why God is faithful to his promises is because he's a loving God. And it's God himself that spoke them. This is why God's promises have power, because they come from him himself, and and they're not empty. So as you spend time reflecting on your life, this Advent season, this week, even right now, what are the promises that God has spoken over you? What are the promises that he's spoken over you? What are the promises that the Holy Spirit is drawing you towards that he needs to remind you of in this season? Because the enemy wants you to not remember them. He wants you to not trust them, especially if they haven't come into fruition yet. But even if they haven't, do you have a sense of joy knowing that the God who loves you, that the God who created you, the God who created the heavens and the earth, has spoken them. Because our God, my friends, has a perfect track record of keeping his promises. And he won't stop now. Because it is only God alone who gives us that source of joy that accompanies peace. John 14, 27, I alluded to this last week. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. 1 Peter 1, 8-9, though you have not seen him, You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. With eternal pleasures at your right hand. In Psalm 43, 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God. True joy is found within the presence of Jesus, my friends. And we have the presence of Jesus within us. We have the Holy Spirit. This is our source of joy. I can't help but hammer that down. It is available to us. It it is a gift. We cannot earn it. We cannot manufacture it. it. Just like our salvation is a gift that God offers to us in himself. Are you receiving that? Are you receiving that gift of joy in this season? Despite your circumstances, joy is available to you. Where is God asking you to dwell upon his promises over your life? When the Holy Spirit brings you again and again to his promises that are found in Jesus Christ... And when you experience a joy and a peace that goes beyond understanding, you can't help but express that joy. And that's point number two. Expressing joy by celebrating the work of God. Expressing joy by celebrating the work of God. The response of joy is not only a deep inward feeling, it's not only these things, but it's expressed in celebration. Augustine of Hippo says this the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. The whole narrative of Jesus' arrival in this world is formed around a celebration. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 11 And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all people. And today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So obviously according to Revelation chapter 12, that whole analogy of the dragon and the woman and the child, yes, it's a declaration of war on the enemy, but this angel says that the good news of Jesus Christ's arrival is going to bring great joy to all people. For those of us in this room that have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we know of that level of joy that we can experience from that. That even though we have trials and circumstances, sometimes there's a perspective on our circumstances that go beyond our own understanding. My world is crumbling around me right now and yet for some reason, I just trust that God's in control. I can't help but rejoice in that. It doesn't make sense. Most of what God does doesn't make sense, but this is a joy that's inexpressible. I can't put it into words, but God can, and it's available to us. So what I want to do now is actually look at those three promises we just looked at in the first section between Moses and David and Mary, and I want to now look at those coming into fruition, but also as they do, some of the some of the actions that come as a result of that. How others express the joy of God's promise coming to fruition. So Moses and the slavery to Egypt. As we see as we move throughout the book of Exodus, we see God was extremely faithful to that promise. The ten plagues come on. At the tenth plague, he passes over the houses that have the blood on the doorposts. And it was through that promise that the king of Egypt said, fine, now you can go. And so as the Israelites go, they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea and the Egyptians are now starting to come after them again. But God does a miracle, and he parts that Red Sea. When Moses raises his hands, Scripture says that the waves become as though walls, and the Israelites were able to pass through it. And as they do, the Egyptians start to come after them again, but after they finally cross the Red Sea, they get onto land. The waves now become what they were before, and wash up the enemy. All the chariots, all the horses, all the slave drivers, gone in an instant. In Exodus chapter 15, look at the response of Miriam, the sister of Aaron Moses, as a result of this powerful promise that God came, brought into fruition. Exodus 15, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang, singing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He has hurled into the sea. Because of the joy that was in her heart, because of what God did in saving the Israelites and bringing that promise into fruition, she couldn't help but express herself in singing and dancing. Now, I'm not saying we need to do that. I know you guys, you do not want to see me do that, so don't even bother asking for me to express my joy that way. But try to grasp what's happening here. She just saw God perform a miracle. She just crossed a sea as though it were dry land. And this was how she expressed her joy, with timbrels and singing and dancing. And King David, in Second Samuel 5, 1-5, to this is the passage where he's actually anointed himself. After everything he's gone through, after being chased by Saul and all these type of things, he's finally anointed over Israel. All the tribes of Judah, verse 1, all the tribes of Judah came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed him king over Israel. So David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 35 years. God bringing yet another promise into fruition. God's chosen king is finally the king of Israel. Now I want to look at one chapter over from that. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. This is an important passage for King David too, because of the fact that the ark was captured by the Philistines and is now being brought back into Jerusalem. God's presence is now being brought back into Jerusalem. And look at the response of King David, verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all of Israel were bringing up the, Lord, the ark of the Lord with shouts, of, with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Again, another passage. Because of the ark of, Co- ark of the covenant, which housed the presence of God, was being brought back into the, s- the city of Jerusalem, David couldn't help but express himself. He was dancing around, so much so that his wife, Michael, thought he was a wackadoo as a result of that. But understand what's going on here. When you experience joy, you can't help but express that. And sometimes the way you express it is just uh, abnormal. I don't know what that looks like for you guys, but it's sometimes so inexpressible to even try to comprehend. Sometimes you just want to raise your arms and just sing with your voice, Hallelujah, God, you reign. Whatever it is, our joy is to be expressed. And, as well, Mary. Luke 1 again, verse 39 to 45. This is when she approaches the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah. They're both pregnant now. And this is what happens. Crazy, crazy passage here. Verse 39, at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town and a Hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in her womb. For the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. The baby inside of Elizabeth leaped for joy because of the fact of the Messiah, the promised one, was in the room. Let me ask you a question. When God's in the room, do you leap for joy? When God's presence is so evident, what's your response? Because after this, we see in the next few words, Mary declares a song. She breaks out in song as a result of what's happening. Now we come to Jesus Christ himself, the source of our joy. I alluded to passage last week, but Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the Hebrew word for joy is actually called uh, simha, simha, And interestingly enough, that word translates very challengingly in English, but the best way we can describe it, jubilation. Which comes from Leviticus chapter 25 in the year of Jubilee. So, I'm not going to ask you to turn to Leviticus 25. You can read that before you go to sleep tonight. That's the best book to read before bed. But um, (laughs) The year of Jubilee, every 50 years, once there was the sound of a trumpet, the canceling of all debts in the land, all slaves were released, no no crops were planted, and all property was returned to the original owner for one year. The land would lay low for a year with no labor. And this was a celebration of the gracious provision of God that he could be trusted to provide what was needed even if there was no labor towards it. Even if your land was now back to the original owner, even if you didn't have any slaves, I could still be trusted. And this reminder that the nation of Israel had was what life is like under the goodness of God. Knowing that even if they still don't do what they're supposed to do or whatever, that God is still going to provide. Jubilee was a big deal in the Old Testament. Imagine you're one of these slaves and you know that it's not time for Jubilee yet, but it's coming in one year. My freedom is coming in one year. Imagine what your response will be when you hear that trumpet that it's time to go home. Joy. <laughs> How would you react knowing that there is hope despite the despair? That God is still going to take care of you. That God is still going to provide. Because in this passage in Luke chapter 4, Jesus actually says that at the very beginning of his ministry around the year of jubilee. He is jubilee. He is the fulfillment of jubilee. That he is restoring all creation back to the original owner, back to the creator. Through Jesus, the true jubilee, (laughs) when the poor receive the good news, when the blind receive sight, when the captives are set free, when the oppressed are liberated, when God moves powerfully in our lives, how can we not Shout with a joy of jubilee. In Paul's words in Philippians four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about every, or not to be. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to rejoice in what Jesus has done. Trusting God and letting go of our anxieties is crucial, my friends, because in the context of Jubilee, there is no way anyone would, sus- would rejoice in this Jubilee season unless they had a deep trust in God. A deep, a deep trust in God's ability to provide for their needs. This is why Jubilee was so crucial. It was a crucial time for Israel to rejoice. It was a crucial time for them to trust God. Because even Jesus himself, his source of joy was not in what he did, but who he was. And he also admonished others to do the same. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 to 22. This is an extremely convicting passage for me half the time, but it says this. The 72 disciples returned and with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Verse 20, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, Father, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son has chosen to reveal to him. It's an extremely convicting passage because we're not... not, defined by what we do. These, the, I can just imagine this passage, the disciples come back and say, like, Lord, you, I can't believe what's happening. We're going out, we're casting out demons, we're healing people, all these things are happening. We're doing great work. But Jesus says, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but that your name is written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice in what you do, but who you are in me. This is the sole reason we can rejoice. It doesn't matter if you're in the healthcare field, on staff here at the church, a mother, unemployed, whatever it is, you can rejoice. Because as a follower of Christ, your name is written in heaven. And you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Because for Jesus Christ, as we see in Hebrews 12, in the garden, at the night before he died, he was troubled. And he confessed in scripture, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That in the agonies of his own betrayal by a friend, Peter, as a disciple, denied him. He he was tried by corrupt rulers, mocked and scored by godless soldiers, and crucified in public. How could he possibly be sustained? Hebrews 12 tells us. Joy. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We've read it a few times. We're going to read it again. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. My friends, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in some weird way that I can't ever describe, was the joy set before him he knew what he was going to endure and, and in the garden just try to picture yourself in the garden scripture says he, he sweated so much it was like blood all his friends are sleeping he's weeping all alone this is his last chance to get out of it and he says Lord not my will but yours be done my friends Jesus Christ died for you Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman torture device for you. Because his joy, after he walked out of the tomb, sitting at the, ascended into heaven, sit at the right hand of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Is this the God we worship? We worship a crucified and a resurrected Jesus whose source of joy was through the cross. Because Jesus not only ascended to heaven with his joy, but he also left us his joy. He also left, his, left us his joy. John 15 11, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. And his high, priestly, his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 13, it says this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Friends, is this not a reason to celebrate? Is this not a reason to shout with a a spirit of jubilee that the very Jesus Christ, who is the source of joy, leaves us his joy? John Tyson, his beautiful book on resistance, says this, when we take time to celebrate whether personally or communally, we are bringing the glory of God into the brokenness of the world around us. Richard Foster says this about Celebration's Brilliant. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of the consciously chosen way of thinking and living. When we choose this way, the healing and redemption in Christ will break, will break into the inner recesses of our lives and relationships, and the inevitable result will be joy. Again, joy is not something we manufacture, it's not something you need to earn, it's not something you can earn, but it's something that we receive. Jesus left us his joy, and it's found in him. Are you receiving that gift? Because for the Jews, what it looked like for them to celebrate was this idea of tabernacles, booths, uh, unleavened bread, Passover, Purim, the feasts. They would come together as a community and remember and rejoice in what God has done in freeing them from Egypt. Purim, when the nation of Israel was almost wiped out by the Persians, but through Esther was saved. They made these feasts to come together and rejoice and celebrate. My question is, what does that look like for you? What does celebration look like for you? We'll be getting into communion shortly. And while this is a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us in his body and his blood, but it's also this, it's also caused us to rejoice. It's also time to celebrate. Communion causes us to celebrate. Just as I close... A story of a gentleman by the name of Blaise Pascal. A few of you may know him. He was a French Christian mathematician in the mid-1600s. He was a deep intellectual thinker, like myself. I really like reading. I really like reading wildly and just thinking really deeply on life. But this guy is that on steroids. And near the end of his life, he had such a deep encounter with God that it radically changed him. And this encounter is, as he was reading the high priestly prayer, ironically enough, And as he was reading, God met him in such a powerful way. Because for him, knowing God by intellect was not enough. He needed a personal encounter. And so after he became a Christian, he moved to join a Catholic order until he died. And after he died, they opened up his jacket. And patched near his heart was his own encounter with God. And this is what it said. From about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve... Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, Deus meum et deus vestrum. Your God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything else except God. He is to be found only by the ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the human soul, Righteous Father, the world has not kn- known you, but I have known you. Check this out. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Let me ask you a question. If we were to open up your heart right now, what would be written on it? Would it be religion? Despair? Or would it be joy, 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 tears of joy? This is what Jesus caused Blaise Pascal to do. Radically changed him. He was known to be one of joy. Because we worship a God not of the scholars, not of the philosophers, not of this world, but we worship a God who died for us, who defeated the grave, who restored us to our Father. We worship the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, alone. And that is our true source of joy, my friends. So we talked about hope This posture of watchfulness for the presence of our Master. This peace, enduring the peace or embracing the peace of Christ in the midst of uncertainty and the joy, receiving this beautiful gift by dwelling on the promises of God and rejoicing in the work that he's doing in our lives. My friends, in this Advent season, can this be a reality for all of us? Can this be the prayer of our hearts? Because Jesus came into this world and he's coming back. All of the hope, all of the peace, and all of the joy will one day come into a complete fruition where, where, we will be, where we will be with him in eternity, gazing upon him face to face. Do you long for that day? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we can't help but rejoice in what you've done in our lives. I pray for all of us in this room right now who are not currently experiencing joy. That you would surround them. Lord, that you would remind them of who they are in you. The promises that you've spoken over them even before they were brought into this world. That the promises found in Scripture that you are the great provider, you are the great physician. That the sparrows are being provided by you? How much more will you clothe us and feed us? Lord, I pray against the attacks of the enemy that are trying to rob us of our true source of joy found in Jesus Christ. That we as followers of Christ have the authority to tell the enemy to get lost. Because Lord, my prayer for us as the church is that we become a church who is known by our known by the joy that we have in our Lord. That the world outside who don't yet know Jesus would see us and see us as people of joy. People who have a hope. The people who embrace peace that is also offered to others who don't know you. Lord, clothe us in power from on high. Help us to endure through this season as we wait in the night, as we wait in the darkness for you to come. Holy Spirit, give each and every one of us a deep level of encounter with you through this season. And may we know and may we rejoice that it is you that is present and it is you that is working. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in this church and in our lives. Help us to be aware of that and to encourage one another and rejoice with one another. As you continue to do that, we pray these things.